Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. This is Ricky Schlott. And when you're listening to this, it is not currently October 17th, but when you hear it, it will be. And that will be the day that our book is finally out. You've heard me chit chat quite a lot about this book that I've supposedly been writing. And now you can actually see it in the flesh um, if you order it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever else you might buy your book. And You'll notice that Robbie is not here with me today as I'm doing the intro. And instead, I'm here with Greg Lukianoff, who is the president and CEO of FIRE. And I have the great honor of being able to say also my co-author on the book. So hi, Greg. Great to uh, chat with you, Ricky. And it was really great to get to work with you. There are a lot of people um, when I, I remember telling Jonathan Rausch that I was writing with a you know then 21-year-old and he gave me this look like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, no, she's spectacular. <laughs> and, we, and we really work well together. And, and I don't think... I think this team up produced uh, a really accessible, really entertaining, but also, you know, well-researched and troubling book. (laughs) Definitely true. I I think nonfiction writing is kind of an art form. Popular nonfiction writing is kind of an art form of itself. So you want to make it engaging. But of course, you know, the actual topic is can be depressing sometimes. Absolutely. And I have to say, having done the the audiobook, um, which I've said a few times before, but it was like reading it for the first time. It's just really weird to go from top to bottom. But it is like a really bummer book in a certain way. But then also it, we do a nice job, I think, in my own opinion, if I can toot our horns a little bit, of having these kind of like very discreet case studies of cancel culture going awry in certain institutions, but then also like having uh, restorative, reformative, solutions-oriented chapters as well. But I should say, before we get too deep into the weeds, for those who've not been following this saga, our book is called The Canceling of the American Mind. And it is a not a follow-up in the, in the truest sense, but um, certainly took a name inspiration from The Coddling of the American Mind, which is a book that Greg co-authored with Jonathan Haidt. John Haidt wrote our foreword for this book, which we're very grateful for. Um, but Greg, before we delve into all this, can you tell us a little bit about coddling and um, and also fire and just a little brief overview of um, your your free speech fight? Sure. Um, you know, I was the weird law student who went to law school specifically to do First Amendment law. Um, you know, I'm a first generation American. I was, a, I was a student journalist, all things that kind of radicalize you towards being very pro-free speech. So I went to law school to specialize in First Amendment law. I took every class that Stanford offered on First Amendment. When I ran out, I did six credits on censorship during the Tudor dynasty, because I'm that kind of nerd. And I interned at the ACLU of Northern California. And even then, when I started at FIRE in 2001, uh, I'll back up briefly. FIRE was founded in 1999 by a left-leaning civil libertarian, Harvey Silverglate, who's kind of the person who found me and a more conservative-leaning libertarian uh, named Alan Charles Coors, who's one of the world's leading experts on the Enlightenment and the life and times of Voltaire. And they founded it uh, because they started seeing, particularly starting in the 1980s, that students were increasingly getting in trouble not for what they did, but for what they said. And it was founded in 99. I came on as the first legal director in 2001. And already, I was kind of shocked at how easy it was to get in trouble for what you said on campus. It it was worse than I understood. And yada, yada, yada ahead too. And then I got uh, incredibly depressed in 2007, partially because that was shortly after I became president of FIRE, two years after I became president of FIRE, which was just exhausting. Being in the culture all the time mentally wore me down. I I, I live in kind of a blue bubble. You know, I dated a girl who actually, you know, didn't kind of approve of what I did unless I was defending people on the left. And I said, listen, I I believe that Nazis should be 
protected. I certainly believe Republicans should be. And her response was literally, Republicans might be worse. And so it was just this kind of constant pressure cooker. I got suicidally depressed. Um, I was hospitalized in, in Philly. And if you told me at the time that that would be the positive turning point of my life, I would not have believed you in a million years. Because uh, when I started thinking, when I started recovering from the, the deepest depression I'd ever had, I started doing cognitive behavioral therapy. And CBT is deceptively simple. But what it is, is it's learning to hear those exaggerated voices in your head telling you you're doomed or that, you, that uh, this person hates you or that your life is going to be a failure. These, these all have names. That's catastrophizing, mind reading, all these things that your rational mind knows aren't really true. But you have to train your brain to talk back to those depressive, anxious voices in your head. And you have to get in the habit of it. You can't just know it intellectually. And as I was studying this, I'm like, huh, this is funny. It seems like we're actually telling kids on campus to catastrophize, to engage in binary thinking, to um, overgeneralize, to engage in emotional reasoning. But at the time, I said to myself, well, thank goodness uh, the students aren't listening. They're rolling their eyes at adults like they always had. And sometime around 2013, 2014, um, which is also when, when we designate the beginning of cancel culture, um, when Gen Z started hitting campus, your, your generation started hitting campus in large numbers, it went from the students being the best constituency for free speech to students showing up saying, in the name of mental health, we have to deplatform, de we need new speech codes, we need trigger warnings, we have to police microaggressions. All this stuff that was a big, you know, kind of horrifying because students had always been great on free speech. But also I noticed is like, oh, oh, this is all the cognitive distorted thinking that I was worried about. And, and so way back in 2014, you know, I started thinking these are these habits are going to be a disaster, not just for freedom of speech and academic freedom, but also for mental health. And that's when I wrote the article with Jonathan Haidt in 2015 and then eventually the book in 2018. But when it came to the numbers, because we thought we'd see like a little scholarly dip in mental health young, among young people, and it's been an absolute chasm. It's been a disaster for the mental health of young people. So when you, I, I mean, I obviously from being on the ground at um, NYU and a Gen Z or myself can um, anecdotally put a lot of data points on how, oh, you guess a lot of not data points, but little anecdotes here and there from my own experience on how hostile the state of free speech is now. But I know that, I mean, FIRE has an unprecedented trove of data and survey data, particularly um, from students and, and faculty in a way that no one else does. So for listeners who might be a little bit skeptical of how bad things have truly gotten on campus and how unprecedented it is, are there any specific reports or, or survey results that you think put it into perspective for people? Yeah. Our research department at FIRE is amazing. We do a campus free speech ranking um, that I recommend everybody take a look at. And one thing that we were trying to do was take all of the incredible research we have and make sure that we can sort of historically compare the age of cancel culture, which we define as an uptick of campaigns to get people fired, deplatformed, otherwise punished, expelled, starting around 2014, and the culture of fear that resulted from that environment. And it started in 2014 and really accelerated in 2017 and even more so in 2020. The best data we have, because it's hard to know about how many students are affected because a lot of times these happen with no record of it whatsoever. When it comes to corporations, you know, we definitely know of hundreds of examples of people getting fired, but we know a lot of those cases end in uh, non-disclosure agreements. Um, but the one place where we, where we could find at least some portion of what was going on 
was by following what happened to professors. Now, before I give the numbers, it's important to understand that the worst threat to academic freedom that we know of was the Red Scare, the McCarthyism, and that resulted in 63 communists being fired, about 90 people for their opinion overall, usually rounded up to being about 100. I assume actually that number is higher, but at the time they thought it was between 60 and 100 professors fired, and we're still in you know cancel culture. But that was before the law was established between uh, 57 and 73. Since 73, there's nothing even, like the, the one big academic freedom scare was when I started, uh, which was 9-11, and uh, over a dozen professors were targeted. Three ended up being fired, but all three of those were fired for reasons that were, were not about their, their speech. One for academic misconduct that was real, another for att actual attachment to um, foreign terrorism, which seemed actually, he, he went to go live with the Muslim Brotherhood <laughs> after he left the country, um, and another one for devoting too much of an unrelated class to political opinion, which is within the law. Like basically, if you take your physics class and decide it's going to be you discoursing on your feelings at abortion, that's considered to be just not teaching your class. And so, but three people being fired was considered kind of a big deal. In our database, we now, uh, since 2014, we've seen over a thousand attempts to get professors punished, fired, otherwise sanctioned. About two thirds of those result in the professors getting punished in some way, and about a fifth of them re result in them being fired, even if they're tenured. So we're looking at like, close to 200 examples, which is twice as bad as, as the Red Scare, just during the Red Scare, everyone knew it was happening. And to give some perspective of, of how this is also just the tip of the iceberg, we also polled faculty, 16% of them, one out of six said that they ha have been threatened with or actually investigated for their academic freedom, freedom of speech, etc. That's a colossal number. And to put it in perspective again with the Red Scare, that survey I was talking about, when they were studying the Red Scare at the time of the Red Scare, they did a, a massive survey and they found about 9% of professors were saying that they were self-censoring. Um, that's terrible. That's basically, that's close to one in 10. That's a chilled environment. We did a survey of a larger sample of professors and found that 90% of professors said that they were self-censoring. So, so the idea that this isn't happening is silly, to be honest. One of the things that we've both noticed in writing this book is that there's tend to be um, like ebbs and flows in, in cancel culture. And I mean, I certainly remember 2020 being like a, a particularly terrifying moment where we were all locked in to our homes. So everyone was seeing all the like slanderous stuff that was being flung around on social media. And I mean, I've, I think the, the 2024 election is probably going to head into a, oh, a similar yeah. cycle of just pulling people down. Not, I not mean, looking forward to next year. I got to tell you. Yeah. And I mean, international conflicts and I mean, these, these hot button issues that seem like the things that we would like to be able to have, the most robust possible discourse about and yet seem to plunge us so deeply into into a liberalism and censorship. And, you know, I I mean, I've I'm 23. I don't really have a lot of historical context uh, beyond my own like narrow experience. And frankly, my political consciousness started in 2016 um, or a little bit before that. I don't I was 12 when Obama was elected the last time. So I'm curious in, in your vantage point, just like when did you start to see the seeds of of a liberalism being sown in the way that like it's 
it just seems to spring up whenever there's anything that's actually important to discuss. Is this something that has been getting worse and worse and worse, but has always been the case? I mean, as the Red Scare would indicate, or is there something like particularly different about our moment? And I mean, do you think it's only going to continue to get worse and, and flare up in the way that it has historically? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Now, of course, you know, I have a substack called the Eternally Radical Idea because my point is that free speech is always a radical idea in every generation because it's human instinct to want to censor. Like it, it, it's, um, I think Nat, Nat Hentoff used to quote, um, and I can't remember who actually said it originally, but the first instinct is to, is to censor sex as a distant second, <laughs> which I always liked. And I think it is, you know, um, uh, someone up there was another quote about someone. The only time we met people we disagreed with in the ancestral environment was at the tip of a spear. So we're, we can be very tribal creatures. But after the printing press was invented, there was this you know, flowering of philosophy around the freedom of information, around freedom of speech and the value of having robust freedom of speech. And that evolved you know, over the centuries, um, became embodied in the American First Amendment, which also, of course, includes freedom of the press, by, by which they literally meant the machine, the press. And it took time. But by the 20th century, uh, the First Amendment started being strongly interpreted by the Supreme Court. And we had a, at least the United States had a really powerful free speech century in the 20th century. So I can say from my vantage point, yeah, the 50s, you know, uh, had serious challenges on campus. I also make the point that there was also a terrifying, you know, national security crisis going on. And suddenly, you know, people were aware of the fact that American and British spies had helped get, give someone who, uh, Stalin, who had as many, uh, you know, had killed as many people uh, as as any of the worst people in history had given them the bomb. So, like, the, there was reason. Like the 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 fact that people freaked out. I always make the argument that's like, well, do understand that people would freak out today too if something if something like that happened. But I was lucky enough to be you know uh, to grow up in the eighties and nineties. Free speech was a publicly held value, uh, but particularly on the left, you know, on the liberal left, like it was considered almost, you know, taken for granted that you were a free speech absolutist. And it was only when I got to Stanford Law School um, in 97 that I started really seeing that in, in elite left circles that this was becoming kind of a passe point of view. And when I worked at the ACLU, which I mentioned before, it, it was clear that the free speech guys were not the cool kids in the office anymore. And I started observing what I called the 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 slow motion train wreck that we talk about in the in the book that a lot of us who are more on the left but very pro free speech were like oh I see what's happening um the left is changing its mind about freedom of speech and this is going to be a disaster in the future so a lot of my career you know on campus watched this kind of slowly progress um but man did it accelerate in the last 10 years it used to be that I first First Amendment free speech people are used to people saying, I absolutely believe in free speech, but this person should be punished. I can live with that because that's kind of normal that people actually, you know, I, I'll, I'll fight them. But, but, but at the same time, I'm like, that's eh, human nature. What I did see coming, though, um, I, I did see coming because it, it was built up on campus for decades, was attacking not just free speech at, in practice for individuals, but free speech period, free speech as, as a philosophical value. And we write a lot about what's been happening, you know, on campus um, and, and among people who are supposed to be defending academic freedom. And, and the so we call it the anti-free speech movement in the book. And it's really dangerous. And it's one of the reasons why, as much as I'd like to be, oh, we'll get over this and we'll all be fine. I'm like, but 
how? The, the, the viewpoint diversity in higher ed is almost non-existent. And one of the most recent books about academic freedom is arguing that academic freedom should not include white supremacy, which they define in the critical race theory way, which basically means anything that disagrees with a dominant political orthodoxy. And it's going to be, it's going to take a lot of work to pull ourselves out of this hole. And one chapter that I was actually looking over today was um, about the NCRI data that that we highlighted in our book about how social media censorship. We were very lucky to have that that data too. Yeah. So I mean, I'll briefly characterize it, but because um, I have a, a question that that I'm curious to kind of put you on the spot with a little bit. But um, <laughs> this basically, we have this this data set that we were very fortunate to um, be able to write about from the nat- the. Network Contagion Research Institute. Is that right? I think that's right. Um, NCRI. Uh, you can fact check me afterwards on that one. But um, they essentially have been able to chart mass bans of like social media accounts on fringe right, uh, Twitter accounts on, on fringe right spaces, whether it's white supremacists or people associated with the Proud Boys and, you know, a few points that we're not endorsing by any stretch, but mass bans of these individuals. And then at the exact same time, a mass flocking to more extreme, more echo chambery crevices of the internet, such as Gab, and also a large spike in conversations about about bans and censorship on those platforms. And effectively, what it seems like is, is that censoring people who are on extremes pushes them into crevices where they are they have a confirmation loop and confirmation bias and they're only hearing from people that they agree with and you know everyone on twitter might be a little relieved not to be hearing that sort of rhetoric on there but it's still existing and it's in fact existing underground in a place that it can fester in a way that on twitter perhaps if somebody were to point it out or refute it it wouldn't be able to to have the same grip on on individuals in that in that sphere and so i think a lot of what we talk about um, social media wise in this book is that there is the censorship on social media does cause a polarization spiral, which I think puts us in a, a place where cancel culture is, is definitely more able to thrive. But I'm curious, um, obviously not on like a regulatory government front, but like what from, from a, a private company's standpoint, I know that you've written to Elon Musk in the past about what you think um, he could do better. And like, what what steps, just like if you owned a social media company, what steps would you take to make sure that free speech is respected and to try to make a, a kind of place where dialogue is actually happening and it's not just trolls and teardowns and, and cancel culture and pylons? Yeah, I think there should be all sorts of different kinds of social media platforms for different purposes. And depending on what your purpose is, that defines kind of a lot of what what your rules should be. So I actually wrote to Elon Musk saying, listen, you can borrow a lot of wisdom for how how to have freedom of speech in the real world by looking at First Amendment law, not because you're bound by it. You're not. You're a private company, but because there's a lot of deep thinking um, in those uh, decisions. So for example, the very heart of censorship is called viewpoint discrimination, which basically means a situation in which you allow you know everybody to talk except if they have this one opinion and that person is always automatically banned. And of course, you see that you know increasingly on campus and oftentimes in social media that the number of arguments that are considered blasphemous has really skyrocketed in recent years. I think that you should have a no viewpoint discrimination policy. Um, I think you should absolutely punish threats. 
Um, I think that actually the lack of punishing terroristic threats and actual threats of bodily harm or death has made people more free speech skeptical uh, because they think, oh, but that's just protected speech. No, it's not. <laughs> like, like actually, it's like putting someone in, in harm of, of of being killed or, or or putting someone in fear of being killed or harmed. You know, that that's a terroristic threat that shouldn't be protected. Nor is it. You know, harassment. Can I ask you a question on that front for my own? Sure. Uh, my own selfish reasons, just because I don't know the answer exactly. Like, yeah, what is the threshold of being of in fear for yourself? Because I think that there's that's probably you know, subjective to a certain degree where it is. you might get spooked. So what is the, like, how do you define, like, this is actually when you can reasonably, this is a reasonable threat and not just some troll, just like moving on to the next person and saying, I hope you die. That is a great question. And the, the way they do it in the law, um, and there there are some cases that are a little mixed on this, but I think the right way to do it, and, the, you know, there are opinions that say exactly this, is are you subjectively threatened? Are, are you subjectively placed in fear? Which which means, like, are you, did you personally feel that way? And would a reasonable person have been? So that's considered the objective and subjective standard at the same time. And I think that's highly speech protective. But when you look at, you know, true threats cases, one of the reasons why I think it's such a well thought out you know, b- body of law is because it recognizes that unconventional things could be trying to trying to convey a threat. Um, that, that that there may be like a, a, a traditional message. Uh, you know, b- before the um, KKK started using burning crosses, you know, when that did, wasn't attached to the idea of you know race ter- terroristic racism, it didn't necessarily carry that message. But when you so there was a case there was a case on point that obviously you can use a burning cross to convey the threat that I am going to kill you or harm you or burn down your house. However, that very same opinion said, you know, people g- gathering together to have their awful cross burning in their backyard are not conveying a threat. They have, it's offensive expression, but it's not directed at anybody. So, so the law around threats, I actually think makes more sense than it usually, people usually give credit to, to it. Um, when it comes to defamation, I'm less comfortable with that being handled online. I think that the the standard for defamation is pretty tough, but it should be because otherwise you start getting in trouble for you, you know mere criticism. But on the other end of, of what I'd love to see, and, I, and I'm working a little bit with a company called Integrally about this, and I mentioned this a lot in the Lex Friedman podcast, I would love it if there was a stream, so to speak, like within Twitter or within some of the big platforms or even an entirely different platform where the entire goal is truth-seeking. And I think if that's the case, then some different kind of rules have to apply. It doesn't have to be mean that there can be no anonymity, but it does mean that you have to have skin in the game. That essentially, like, you get one account, it's verified that you're a real person, you can call yourself Socrates, I don't care. And then you get sort of ranked on how much integrity you show uh, in terms of you know, evaluating things fairly, because I, I think that that's really what took the printing press from just being a pro- producing cacophony and disruption to being really productive is that it started becoming this tool for, you know, what's fancily called disconfirmation, that actually chipping away, you know, finding truth by chipping away at falsehood. So I, I actually, I have, I still have some techno-optimist in me. I, th- I think both of us do. I think that this would be a good time to talk a little bit about um, something that I think is a, a common thread between this podcast, which is one project of mine and this book and my work with you, which is trying to be somebody who's who's on the right or at least right leaning and who is able to be in conversation with with people with whom I disagree. And that's something that um, I I mean, doing this podcast, I have to say, like my co-host Ravi is is on the left and I think a very reasonable person, but it it's made me 
have to challenge my viewpoints in a way that I don't have to, frankly, if I'm going to go speak to someone who I assume agrees with me or uh, a more conservative outlet. Like I, I just kind of feel like I, I, you know, it's just kind of lobbing a ball to me versus like, actually, I, I, it's hard to express how much I've grown from that intellectual experience. And I feel the same way working with you and, and working with, with uh, everyone at FIRE. I mean, I think it's a remarkably viewpoint neutral uh, organization where there are people from all over the spectrum. And so I think that listeners would be curious to hear a little bit um, from you about how both the right and left uh, engage in cancel culture, because I think I, I feel like there's no winning for us in a way because we call out both sides and like, no matter what on Twitter, there's always someone who's like, they're only blaming the right or they're only blaming the left. And, and, you know, I mean, we definitely call both out. So I, just to give a brief overview, we have rhetorical fortresses is the metaphor that we use to explain the ways and like the like structural fortresses in which people box themselves in from having to actually engage with viewpoints. And there's one on the right and one on the left, um, the perfect on the left and the efficient on the right. Um, so can you give a, a kind of brief boil down overview of, of how both sides of the political aisle engage in cancel culture? Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to be clear, we take on both left and right. And Ricky's totally right in that for some reviewers, we can't win because, you know, some some criticism on the left is kind of like they they take on the left. But they're, um, and, and even though they take on the right as well, uh, the right's the much bigger threat. So they they should shut up. And then another, you know, pretty favorable review that we got, uh, you know, pointed out, it's like that they're, you know, trying to be even-handed and therefore call out things that aren't actually cancel culture, which in our opinion is very defensible. So, you know, but we're, we're, I, we're ready for that, you know, So and we expect it. Tr- trying to actually show some integrity in a cultured, polarized time uh, it can be hard. So one thing that we try to explain is that cancel culture, in addition to being, you know, callous and cruel in a variety of ways, is also a way of winning arguments without winning arguments. What we mean by that is that Cancel culture is oftentimes used in social media that if someone is saying something you really don't like, to just scare the living hell out of them, get them fired, otherwise, you know, go after them. And sometimes it, it can be someone says something, you know, political, and then they find something that they wrote 20 years ago to try to get them canceled. That's called offense archaeology, and it happens a lot. So we talk about how uh, we have metaphors about what the right and left both use, and we call that the obstacle course, and that includes like classic logical fallacies. Um, I'm pointing to actually my my poster of logical fallacies on the wall. We we have the minefield, which are the ad hominem attacks that both sides use. Grifter, you know, like is something that the right and the left say now, which is just an accusation of bad faith. But um, one thing that we think is different on the right and the left is that so much of of the way you win arguments without winning arguments on campus um, is because it comes from campus. It ends up being this Byzantine almost kind of beautiful structure that we call the perfect rhetorical fortress. First, you can dismiss anybody that you can label as conservative. And that doesn't just mean the 36% of people who call themselves conservative. It means anybody really who has an opinion you don't like. And believe me, this happens on campus all the time. And I used to be a sucker for it. And I greatly apologize for that. It's no surprise that you've reached the point where activists are now calling the ACLU right wing and the New York Times right wing because it's worked with everybody else, you know, and they hate to be called that. And that's so you get a huge part of the population just with step one. And there are like 18 more steps in, in the PRF. A lot of them are what we call the demographic funnel, you know, sort of running out the clock by pointing out, you know, someone's race or gender identity or sexuality, et cetera. But then at the end of going through that funnel, when we say we're down to 0.9% of the population, 
uh, and by the way, we're down to really zero because you could also claim anybody in that is conservative, that even if you are exactly in that 0.9% demographic, you know, of a, of a non-white trans person, for example, if you say the wrong thing, you're actually going to be treated even worse uh, and you're going to be vilified. You're going to be told you have internalized transphobia or internalized misogyny or I've internalized racism. Internalized misogyny one, that's for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. And one thing that was really striking is that we, we did this initially as a kind of a Twitter poll, but then we ended up talking to, you know, almost all of the black uh, conservative authors that, that at least that I know pretty well, every single one of them said that they've been told often by white people that they're not really black for having the, uh, the wrong opinion. John McWhorter, um, who's more of a more of a moderate, uh, s- said that as well. And Coleman Hughes, you know, independent thinker himself, said, uh, wow, this is amazing because basically I'm told all the time that the most important thing for my opinion is the color of my skin. But then when I have the wrong opinion, it turns out I've been dubbed not really black. So it, that's why we call it perfect. And there's there's layers beyond that. Like if you get angry, you can be called out for that. You're always held for your least charitable thing. Um, and we have to stop if we want to argue. N- none of this will get you anywhere closer to truth. This will just get you into this you know petty little battle about identity. On the right, though, we call it the efficient rhetorical fortress because it's so efficient at eliminating kind of most of the people you should listen to. And of course, their first step, just like on the other side, is that labeling someone liberal or lefty or woke um, is something that means you don't have to listen anymore. And yeah, I see this applied to staunch conservatives sometimes being called woke um, because it, it tactically works. You don't have to listen to journalists, even if they're conservative, if they don't like what they said, because then they can also you know, basically say they're woke. Experts, uh, because they all, you know, they're elites. Um, and if you're very MAGA, uh, of course, the last step is anything that contradicts or otherwise disparages Trump. And, and that's the most rabid, you know, th- thing I've seen. We have a whole chapter largely dealing with how many people Trump targeted to try to get him fired and sometimes successfully like over the years. So we have these rhetorical fortresses. They're nasty. They get you nowhere other than cheap victories against uh, against your opponents. And we could actually be instead, here's an option, solving things. And on the solving things front, first I'd like to hear like where, if we keep going down this track that we're on, where do you think this ultimately leads in the in the 2024 short term, but also in the longer term too. Because, like, I'm at just anecdotally, I've I've interviewed Andrew Yang recently and about his book, and I think of him as like one of the he he also very graciously blurbed our book, and we have an interview coming out with him as well. But I think of him as like one of the most positive, kind, like light human beings that I know, and his book is so like dystopian and it's it it takes place in the 2024 election cycle and it's the most depressing terrifying like real life black mirror sort of thing that i don't know like it just hearing that come from him has really like warped my i was kind of happy-go-lucky and now i'm like oh my god we're headed somewhere we're in such trouble really bad um so where do if we don't course correct which i think our book could help society do um we'll fix the whole thing by 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 christmas (laughs) (laughs) Um, but if we don't course correct like where where does this sort of lead us in the end to this degradation of free speech i say that you know i'm a temperamental optimist but i just facts are making me pessimistic um i mean what's currently going on you know in 
in the Middle East, like the likelihood of that getting out of control, I think is very high. I, I don't know where we'll be by the time this comes out. I think likelihood, you know, of an Israeli Iran war is very high. Um, you know, and of course, my people, Russia, has always got its fingers and stuff messing things up. Sorry, I'm, I'm pretty. My, my wife calls me a self-hating Russian. And 2024, of course, is going to be scary um, because you know I'm. I am still a Democrat, and I think that the like if Trump is the candidate, I think the likelihood of there being some kind of constitutional crisis, no matter what, related to the vote, is almost inevitable. So don't we're, read we're Andrew's book. A, it's gonna don't read it. <laughs> I mean, do oh no. read it. I highly recommend it, but I would say you personally don't read it if you're afraid of that. It's it's terrifying. Yeah. So 2024 is going to be is going to be a scary reckoning. And unfortunately, I think we're all acting um, in a way that's not mature enough to actually navigate our way through this. But, you know, cultures have crises sometimes. And, and uh, I, you know, there's a good chance that if 2024 passes and we're if we're not in a civil war or, or, or like, you know, I'll, I'll be happy now. I actually think that some of the stuff that needs to happen is we have to figure out other ways of people indicating that they're high integrity, that they're really smart, that they're really hardworking, that they're really well-read other than elite higher education, because I make no bones about it. I think we underestimate, even if you have nothing to, if you think you have nothing to do with elite higher education, you're wrong because they educate our leaders, both left and right. And they're very strange places. They, they distort society in all sorts of ways. And I think that if there was something out there that was kind of like this impossibly hard test that you could take just by reading, you know, the uh, the Western canon or something, I don't know, or, or, or all the major works of philosophy, um, that maybe one out of 10,000 people could pass, that would be a better indication that you're hardworking, disciplined, all this kind of stuff than going to Harvard. Because, you know, and yep. Harvard finished dead last on our campus free speech rankings. And believe me, they they earned it. Uh, this was, you know, 13 different uh, factors that went into that. And I, and I pick on them a lot because they deserve it, for one thing. They are the most famous school in the country. And it's important for, for employers to understand that 45% of the students, uh, of the white students who go to Harvard are either legacy, kids of professors, or athletes. And the average, average, this just always blows me away, the average GPA at Harvard is a 3.8, essentially perfect, uh, or damn near it. So right now, how good is Harvard really doing of producing someone you want to hire? They, they could be one of these legacy kids, you know, who waltzed in. They didn't have to really do anything because I know from my own experience, yeah, it's it, graduating top of your class at Stanford is a challenge. Failing is almost impossible. Failing out is almost impossible. Um, <laughs> yeah. And there are people that take, that take full advantage of that. And I think that if there, if we had other ways that people could stay independent-minded, um, that uh, can think for themselves, but also can indicate that they're the best and brightest, and really you should be hiring from this alternative thing. What and I, you know, and there are experiments currently going right now. Minerva University in San Francisco, I think, is is an interesting experiment. Certainly, University of Texas at Austin is, and I just want more and bigger and better. And of the solutions that we um, go through in the book, which, I mean, to your credit, you walked the walk on that front. You changed FIRE's organizational structure to make sure that I could be a fellow without a college degree. And, and you hadn't realized at the time that that was a rule that was on the books. And I feel very fortunate 
to have benefited from that rule change. Um, but aside from the higher ed, what other uh, solutions would you pull out of our book? Um, that's the third, a third and final section of our book is is more solutions oriented. And I mean, honestly, I think we throw a lot at the wall, and I think that's the sort of moment that we're in where we just need to see what sticks, and a lot of solutions need to be toyed with. But what what would you highlight as like the things that make you most hopeful that if we were to adopt these sorts of resolutions, uh, we could actually find ourselves in a, a more healthy place? I think K through 12 needs a lot of fixing. Um, uh, I, you know, I've been on the opposite side of people like Chris Rufo on the various, you know, divisive concepts laws. Um, but, it, but it's not because I don't see a problem in K through 12. Um, and I really do. And my, my kids are public K through 12. And even though, you know, his teachers are lovely people. I think that there's, you know, um, the ideological uniformity of education schools is, is a problem. So one thing, you know, that, that I'll, I'll admit, and I'll I'll get some flack for is I I've gone full voucher. You know, I now actually think vouchers could help to, to a degree, but I also, instead of having something like a divisive concept law, what I wanted was something that would be a positive vision that would actually make some of the more primitive identity politics and, and shaming and guilt um, and, uh, less likely or, or even impossible due to other more positive values. So I originally wrote this out as something I called the empowering of the American mind because, you know, I got a stick, might as well stick with it. Um, it's at thefire.org, but we did a summary of it um, in canceling of the American mind about various positive visions we could have to keep in mind in K through 12 reform. Um, because I think that you, you, you can't just say, don't do the following things. You have to actually have something where, that, where it could be satisfying and, and, and inspiring, but also still, you know, uh, protect individual dignity, make sure that you're not lumping people together just on the color of, you know, color of their skin or, or who they happen to sleep with. Oh, on the parenting front as well. You're a dad of yes. two boys. And so I, I get, I mean, I think a lot of our, our listeners are parents as well. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to, talk about a lot of our solutions in the book are, oh, if for listeners, he's showing a very cute photo of the two of them. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> one thing that's kind of interesting is we talk about like our, our antidote to cancel culture is a free speech culture and the reinvigoration of a lot of old idioms that frankly, I wasn't raised with. I didn't really know anything about John Stuart Mill until I pulled out of college. Ironically, I didn't understand a lot of the the basic like idioms and, and tenants that under, underpin democracy. And I think that that's a challenge that a lot of parents might not even realize that they have because I I think my parents probably just assume that I was learning these things that they grew up with that I definitely wasn't in school. So what do you think um, on the parenting front, what do you think is most important to distill and, and how we can make sure that the next generation actually might return to some of those ideals and be more resistant to you know tearing each other apart on social media? Yeah, I'm actually talking to Alyssa Rosenberg at the Washington Post right after this about this question specifically, like how do you raise a kid with good attitudes about freedom of speech? And some of it would be somewhat counterintuitive, I think. Um, the first quality is cultivate humility and curiosity. And sometimes people are like, oh, you, well, you arrogant free speech people, like, uh, like, what are you talking about humility? And it's like, no, no, no. At the core of freedom of speech is this profound, you know, epistemic humility, like uh, uh, humility, intellectual humility, like knowing how little you know in the grand scheme of things. Because once you realize that, who are you to censor anybody? This is something that Mel points out really well, is, is like to be the censor is to take on the position of being all-knowing because you don't know where wisdom will come from, for example. You know, the, I always point out like people like Lenny Bruce, like who, who knew that a, you know, potty-mouthed 
comedian could actually have some really profound insights on the nature of, of society back in the 50s and 60s. And he really did. Um, you know, it was, it was in prison for some of his some jokes today that would not, you know, would, would nobody would bat an eye at. Um, I do think the idioms that you mentioned, making sure that they know them, you know, th- like things that were everywhere when I was a kid and just taken for granted to the point th- that they were kind of laughable cliches, but we all agreed on them, you know, like, like we'd, we'd kind of like roll our eyes a little bit. But yeah, we all believed it's a free country. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. Uh, you know, you, you shouldn't judge someone until you walk a mile in, in, in their shoes. Um, it's okay to say that's not my cup of tea. All of these kind of idioms that are actually really good for having a small d democratic society. I want them to uh, actually know them for one. And the the curiosity part is it is really important. And of course, you know, sometimes with your kids, you have to really be clear that you don't want your kids to be cancelers. That essentially, like that, you know, that because. I, I've seen this happen at some high schools around here where, where administrators really seem to be facilitating some of this stuff. A student does something kind of embarrassing on TikTok that was entirely unintentional, and, and then people figure out a way to be offended by it, and they turn it into a whole thing directed at this person. And I'm like, no, I want you to be part of the mob saying, come on, people. Like, this is a good person. Like, we're turning them into some kind of abstraction of human evil. That's wrong. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a a great place to leave it and to say once again that today is finally the day that the the supposed (laughs) book is actually real and it could show up on your doorstep with Amazon Prime and um, in very short order. But um, I also want to say thank you, Greg, for um, for being here and for writing this book with me. I mean, it's like one of these things where I still can't even believe that that really happened. And um, I think listeners of the podcast are probably familiar with the fact that the only reason that this even came to fruition in the first place is because I read The Coddling of the American Mind as a college student who was actively hiding books under my bed, which you'll be glad to know. (laughs) Yours was not included among them. That one I was not embarrassed to have. Um, Oh, good. (laughs) But but it's truly the most humbling experience that I've ever had in a a dream come true. And I couldn't ask for a better co-author and partner. And yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to see, um, where, where this book goes and, and where it takes you and super honored. The feeling is entirely mutual. You were such a great person to write with. Um, you know, you, you were totally no drama. And I always point out that I got anxious and depressed during this whole thing. So I'm kind of like, am I really going to subject my family to this like the the people who are pro cancel culture can be really nasty and like bringing it you know making yourself more of a target and so ricky could attest there were times where i got a little dark you know um and the maturity you know my much younger author showed um and resilience and ability to roll roll with the with all the challenges i mean it, it, I, I always say i feel very lucky to have got to author something with you Oh, thank you. I'm definitely the luckier one, but I'll leave the podcast at that and take the last word and say, uh, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe and buy our book. And thanks again, Greg. Thank you.